Welcome to Kingdom Builders, where you can learn to live on mission for God. If you want to see more people saved and increase your impact on the kingdom of God, this is the place for you. Every week, we will have guests who are actively living on mission for God, and you will hear practical advice on how you can become better at sharing Jesus with your world. Coming on the uh, show, the Kingdom Builders podcast, and today we have a special guest, Miss Holly uh, Allen, who is a professor of family studies and, and Christian ministries at Lipscomb uh, University in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, her book, Spirituality and uh, Resilient Children. And so, um, Holly, could you tell us about the life-changing event that radically reoriented your thinking? about children and faith in the 1990s? Sure. Uh, We were part of a church plant uh, from 1993 to 1997 in Texas. Uh, And the centerpiece of this church was to gather in intergenerational small groups. Um, We did come together on Sunday mornings, all the groups together. We began with about 25 people, and that was one small group. In the four years, we grew to about 725 uh, small groups. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I really grew fast. Uh, Every Sunday evening, we met in homes in these cross-generational gatherings, everybody together, probably 25 to 40 people in a group. So every week, I participated in these, you know, pretty close settings where children and teens and college students and young families, middle adults, older adults, we sang together, prayed, listened, laughed, shared, played, (laughs) cried, (laughs) cried, ate, and hoped together, and we blessed one another. And I saw something in those small groups that I hadn't experienced in Sunday school or children's church. I had been teaching Sunday school practically all my life and led a children's church, uh, began that program at a church before we we started with this one. Um, I just saw things in these settings that were different. These things were different. Children and teens began praying with and for their parents and other adults. Children and teens began ministering with and to their parents and other adults. I had not seen that before. And I, I began to wonder what was happening. It wasn't just with the children and the teens, though, all of us. It was just really a what I would call a hot house setting for spiritual growth and development. And so I, I it just changed my understanding of Christian education and spiritual formation. I had viewed, you know, Christian education is, you know, you come together and you study the Bible and you learn the information and, you know, you learn the stuff and you do it and you live it right. Right. This was different. This was uh, now what I call spiritual formation, Christian spiritual formation. We were being formed in the image of Christ together. And I I was so intrigued by this that I left Texas. We moved to California. I, I got my doctorate degree. And my question was, what is it? about these intergenerational settings that just nurtures us so much. And, and how can we continue to do that? So I began looking at really the construct of spirituality or spiritual formation, which was a little bit of a shift from looking at growing each other up in terms of learning information and learning what to do. It was transformation of the heart. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a very different mindset because I, I do agree that a lot of times we focus on the information, you know, like, hey, learning about David and Goliath. David was a little short shepherd boy and Goliath was big, you know, but like what you're talking about, I feel like it's very important because it has the potential to 
help transform their adult life, you know, because let's, let's be realistic. A lot of times what happens is, you know, as, as kids, you know, we grow up and, and we have difficult situations in, in life and we're like, well, I remember David and Goliath, but I don't really know what to do with it now. You know, that was great for David. He got this giant, but I mean, I got these issues. And so, uh, that's, that's very good. And so, uh, we cannot change the world our children will grow up in. So what are some protective factors that we can use to foster resilient children? The resilience literature is about 40 to 50 years old. And over the years, perhaps the last 20 or 30 in particular, they've been saying, okay, what are some of the things that we can help children, uh, right. that will help children be resilient? And there are various lists. Um, most of them, of course, say, well, capable parents, you know, can really <laughs> help kids. And yeah, and what do we mean by that? Well, these are parents who listen to their children's hopes and fears. They encourage their children. They carry the burden of the situation as adults. They bear the weight of trauma or danger while leaning into their belief that God's present. Uh, and, and, you know, capable parenting is important. It, it just is one of those things. Sometimes parents are enduring or going through some of the very same trauma uh, that they're children are, and sometimes they're not as present as they need to be. They are not as supportive. Uh, for instance, if you lose a child in the family, that's as big a trauma for the parents as it is for the other children. Right, right. So sometimes they're just not able to support their children. And so other, I mean, certainly other uh, adults can come around, grandparents, aunts, uncles, even, you know, cousins, uh, friends, other brothers and sisters at church. Uh, even peers can be strong support systems for kids uh, that can help them in their resilience, but those are foundational. Then there, the, uh, another main category of the types of protective factors would be those personal qualities that some children have. Some children just come into the world, you know, saying, I'm going to, I'm going to make it. I'm going to yeah, push through. Right. I'm, yeah. Yeah. They come with agency saying, uh, this is the way I prefer it. And yeah. other children come into the world going, okay, that's good. That's good. And typically, uh, when we talk with children who have come through well, a stressful or hard or even traumatic situation, they tend to be children who are able to um, have some, they have some self-control, they're able to control their emotions to some degree, they have this sense of agency, uh, some of these self-qualities, uh, they tend to often have problem-solving skills, high self-esteem, motivation to succeed. But not all children have all those. And even if they do, they don't necessarily always just come into the world with them. Those relationships can help develop in our children this, this sense of agency. Uh, we have a two and a half year old grandson and I think he has this anyway, but uh, you know, when, we, when I read to him at night, when, when I'm there uh, tucking him in, I'll hold up two books for him and say, which one would you like me to read? And he picks one. That's a sense of agency. It's a pretty small little tiny thing, right, right. but it's saying to him, even as young as two, I can choose something. I can affect the things around me. And we do need to help children uh, carry an appropriate sense of agency so that when hard things happen, they don't just go, well, whatever, I guess I just have to take it. There's a sense that they can lean into it and say, how can I help the situation? So that's a resilience factor that, you know, some kids come with, but all children can improve in these things. So we tend to, I don't want to dismiss them and say, well, your kid either has it or doesn't. <laughs> we, we can promote them. So that's also connected to that other's piece. And then another factor that even um, secular resilience researchers include would be something like 
faith can be a resilience factor, hope, the belief that life has meaning. They sometimes call it even religiosity or belief in a transcendent other. Uh, some call it spirituality, but an umbrella term that covers all of those I call uh, spirituality. And it, in fact, even in secular research, will show that children who maintain that sense of hope, who have a strong understanding that God is on their side, that can help them be resilient. And of course, it's easy to see that right now. Right. Uh, so it is a, a, an important and recognized resilience factor. And of course, this book that I wrote leans into that particular uh, piece uh, essentially throughout the book. But I broaden it uh, from just belief in God. I broaden this, this idea of spirituality to include relationship, relationship with self, relationship with others, relationship with God. And if we define it that way, we can build it right around the first and second great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So there are three relationships there, and we are made in the image of God. So I think uh, he is a relational being. God is relational, and he made us like him we're relational beings. I think that relationality is important across the spectrum for resilience. Well, and I think that's that's important because we, you know, there are some things about the world that we can't change for our children. You know, we can't change some of these hardships that they go through in the world. But um, like a couple of things you said, you know, carrying the burdens for them, you know, not burden them with too much adult problems. And and then also instilling in them a belief that, you know, God is on your side no matter what it may may seem like, you know, and, and I think that if we live that belief out and they see us believing that God is on our side, no matter what's going on now, I think that does give them some some hope to to know what you do. And so uh, why do you think a child's spirituality has an important uh, effect on whether they come through hardships? OK, what, why is that a difference maker? Well, I would not have known this until I began uh, teaching a course called Nurturing Children Spiritually. And we, um, about six or seven years ago, we started working with children whose parents are incarcerated. We worked with some refugee kids. We worked with kids who are in extreme uh, poverty. And we were uh, doing some things to nurture them spiritually. But I began reading the resilience literature and realizing <laughs> that what we had already been doing connects amazingly well with mm -hmm. what the resilience literature says we, right. need to, we need to help them have a sense of identity well i mean when you are part of god's body he's called you he's um, he called you by name he knows you that's a wonderful way to begin that sense of identity so so many of the resilience factors really intersected easily with spirituality uh, primarily because god did make us in his image we are relational be beings and the resilience liter literature basically says resilience is interconnected with relationships Mm -hmm. Now, there are some other pieces of the resilience literature, like they'll say, if you have effective communities, good schools, those can also be resilience factors, right. and they don't necessarily intersect keenly with that relational piece, but many of the resilience protective factors are easily, can easily be seen to interconnect with a child's relationship with self, with others, and with God. 
So that's the way I define it. Uh, the child relationship, uh, I define spirituality as the child's relationship with self, others, and God. So all the way through, as I talk about anything else in this book, I talk about how does this particular thing, how can parents promote that child self relationship? How can they promote the child others relationship and the child God relationship? So it became apparent to me over these years of reading the resilience literature and putting it together with what I knew about spirituality, that they're just incredibly interconnected. So that as we encourage and support and promote a child's relationship with him or herself, with others and with God, these very healthy relationships do buffer or moderate the effects of hardship, difficulty, grief, loss, and even trauma. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a good answer. And, you know, I find it interesting that I feel like as, as adults, we know that spirituality is a good thing, you know, because like even parents in, in the community, like at, at my church, you know, we, I have parents that don't come to church, but they want to make sure their kids are in church. They want to make sure that their kids get that opportunity to develop uh, spiritually, even though they may not be working on that, they know that, Hey, that's something that can, that can help my kid. And so that's a, that's a very good thing to know. And so, uh, what are some practical ways that parents can foster a spirituality in their children that will sustain them when hardships come? Um, I really try to, uh, encourage parents in the ordinariness of the days. Most yeah. parents think they need to like have a devotional every day and read a scripture and say a prayer and maybe even sing a song. And, uh, and they feel guilty because they're not doing that. And so that they tend to not even want to hear anything about this because <laughs> they already know what they're supposed to be doing and they're not doing it. And they're already guilty. So don't tell me more things I'm supposed to do. Right. So I try to have, I've come around this from the side. I said, okay, most of us read to our children or our children at beginning at first or maybe second grade begin reading to us uh, as they practice their reading. Uh, but an easy, wonderful way to promote, especially the child self and the child others relationship is when you read a book with your child, pretty much any book, um, you ask them a couple questions. Who are you in the story and why? For instance, the uh, Splendid Friend Indeed book by Suzanne Bloom is a goose and a bear. The goose is very outgoing, very talkative. They're good friends. And bear, it though, is real reticent and quiet. And goose comes up and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you reading? I like to read. Would you like to hear me read? <laughs> and, and bear is like, yeah, I was reading, you know. And then uh, a few minutes later, you know, goose says, what are you doing? Hi, bear. What are you doing? Oh, are you writing? I like to write. You want to see me write? And so we've got these contrasting characters. And then when you, at the end, they come together and uh, Goose says, you're my splendid friend, uh, friend. And then Bear says, you're my splendid friend indeed. So they're good friends, even though they're very different. And at the end, we say, who are you in the story? Right. Even a three-year-old or a four-year-old is kind of able to say, I think I'm the bear. My sister talks all the time and I'm never <laughs> you know, or whatever, or yeah. I think I'm the goose. I like to talk and talk and talk. And of course the mom or the dad's going, yeah, that's so true. Uh, but you're getting them to begin to think about who am I? That's that child self, but you're also nurturing that child others. They're saying to you, the parent, hmm, I think I'm this. And the parent can say, oh, I see that. Yeah. 
And do you have a friend who's the goose or do you have a friend who's the bear? Tell me about that. And so you're just nurturing that sense of self and others. Eventually, some perceptive and interrelational type, uh, in, interpersonal type children who are have high emotional quotients might say to the parent, who are you in the story? <laughs> and, um, you know, you can even say, oh, by the way, I'm so-and-so in the story, but eventually they might ask you, who are you in the story? And then that gives you an opportunity to share who you are with your child and why. And you will be revealing something to your child that probably at four and five, they haven't put together yet, but it starts to give them ways of seeing people and understanding the world. But primarily what we're saying is we want children to ask those child self questions and also those child other questions. That's probably the easiest way because we do it anyway. We're, we're reading those books. Another one is to tell stories of God's work in your life as a child or as a young adult or even now to this day. Hard stories, good stories, sad stories. My little grandson, I was just telling you about sent home from preschool yesterday he hit a child at school <laughs> and his mother called me later in the evening and said hmm yes he hit someone today I said oh what happened well they called me uh, to school and when I got there we explained that he needed to say he was sorry and he said I don't want to say sorry <laughs> and, uh, she said well then we have to go home and I think he didn't really believe her but they got in the car, she buckled him up, and he said, I can say sorry now. <laughs> and uh, she said, it's too late. It was sort of sad, but there were real consequences to his lack of understanding. But today, he has already started talking about, I sorry, I sorry. <laughs> he's, so, in, yeah. uh, he's, he's beginning to learn about those self-others and a child, others, and child self, his responsibility in this. Just an ordinary conversation that, you know, they had to deal with it. Well, this story is one she'll be able to tell him when he's seven and 12 and 15 right. and 30. So stories about his life, but also stories about yours when you learn something. Um, lots of, lots of, well, another really good way is, um, where'd you see God today? Little children will tend to say, if you've said things like, oh, there's a rainbow, I, you know, remember the story in scripture where God sent a rainbow and talk about that. So children will tend to say, oh, I saw God in the changing leaves or in the rainbow or in the river. Uh, so things around them that they're evidence of God's creation. Um, and you can join in that. Absolutely. The full moon last night. Oh, my. He gave it to us for the beauty. He knew that we would enjoy it. But you can also shift that conversation and say things like, well, I saw God at work in me today. I finally talked to my friend. I heard her feelings last week. I was angry. And so I asked her forgiveness. And so God's yeah. been on my heart. And I mean, children might find that a little unusual. But if you do it occasionally, if you say this is how God has been working, they will begin to see it as normal. Right. This is what God does. This is how he's been working in my life. And you can even say things like, well, I was so frustrated with the copier today. And I was so glad God sent someone there who knew how to help me. They were just passing by and saw me frustrated and they helped. Right. Uh, so God is at work. And if you begin articulating those ordinary ways, children begin to see that God is at work. And so you're nurturing that child, others, 
a child God relationship in ordinary ways. You didn't have to sit down and do a devotional. It was just, it came up and that's, so those are ordinary things I would say to parents. Well, that's very helpful. And even the, you know, the little secular books, you know, I mean, if you can get the kids doing that, then when they start reading the Bible stories, they're going to start using those same principles saying, where am I in this story? What, who are you? And and that sort of thing. And so that's an easy bridge to prepare them uh, for that. And so uh, one of the things today is that oftentimes society and churches have at times unintentionally separated the generations. So why do you think intergenerational settings are important for the spiritual formation of our children? Well, that old uh, phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, Our Christian communities are, they're the village. They're the village. And though I obviously agree that it's the parents who are primarily responsible. It takes a village and especially it takes a village today. Many of the other villages around, much of the other parts of society are not saying some of the same things we're saying. In fact, the opposite. Correct. Yes, absolutely correct. We need other believers around our children who are living the way we're living, saying the things we're saying, who believe the things that we believe, they need to know they're not the only ones, that there are many people who are following God, who see God, who know God, who love God. Uh, and very specifically, this child God piece. We were part of this church, you know, for four years, and then later we were part of another church that was very intergenerational. And um, they heard people, many people, talking to God. Our children were young when we were part of this church in the 90s. And they heard other children, they heard teens, they had heard all ages of adults talking to God, bringing their life issues to God. They began to see how they relate to God. So this was the child others piece, but they also began to see who God is. Mm. God is at work in Charlie's life. God is at work in Grandma Nance's life. They were, they got a much fuller view of who this God is. Um, the child others piece, of course, this is what happens in spades when you're in a, an intergenerational setting. Yes, our parents are very important in our faith development, but it is fabulous to be saturated uh, with people around you who also know this God. You get to know others who are also coming to know God. Uh, I did some research uh, a few years ago with um, comparing children in intergenerational settings and their sp- their faith development and spiritual formation with kids who were in intergen those who were in intergenerational settings and those who were not. What I meant by that was they worshipped on Sundays with the whole body of Christ and they were in some other specifically uh, designated intergenerational setting. This was small groups for most of these. Eight of the nineteen boys in the study listed someone who knew God was a father of a friend. None of the other boys did. And all eight of these were boys who were in intergenerational settings. Hmm. It's unusual for boys in general to know about the spiritual life of their friends' fathers. But these boys did because their friends were the friends in their small groups and their fathers were there as well. These boys got to see men who know God and love God. And that was a normal thing. And it looks different in those other. Father, understanding that knowing God is a rich multifaceted thing. And every father has gaps and flaws. 
Right. And so it's nice to know that other fathers are filling in some of those spots. I think in general, one of the biggest things that happens in the intergenerational setting is that your identity is being formed. And identity is one of those resilience factors that many of the resilient scholars mention. They say that children who come through especially traumatic situations are children who had a deep sense of who they were. This is who I am. And especially when they know I'm a child of God. Now, the resilience researchers didn't necessarily say that. God who is present, who is at work on your behalf, bringing about justice. You know a God who loves you unconditionally. You are uh, leaning into a God who is orchestrating recovery, healing, hope, reconciliation, restoration, you have the most powerful resilience factor there is, mm -hmm. knowing this God. And I think you can come to know that God best in intergenerational settings where you hear the stories of lots of people who say, God is at work rescuing me as he did David from the paw of the lion, paw of the bear, and from the arm of the lion. He has rescued me from a very dysfunctional situation and has placed me in a setting where I can now get the help I need. When you hear those stories, your identity is being formed under God with believers, and it is powerful. Well, you know, uh, that, that's a good point. One of the things that we did at our church one time is, uh, had this group of kids and, and youth that were, you know, like kids and youth are a little, little much sometimes. And, uh, and so what we brought them into the sanctuary and I split up all the older senior adults and I gave them a group of these kids. And I told them, I was like, I want you to tell your story to these kids and these youth about what God has done in your life. And it's amazing how much all of them uh, loved it and were just uplifted and just made a difference uh, in, in their life, you know, that they just didn't know that that would happen. So uh, it, it's a good opportunity uh, to do that. Uh, so um, you lay out the clear benefits of the God story, our story approach to children. What do you mean by this and how can we change our teaching to use this? I'll address the first part of that question first. What you just explained to me was part of God's story. That those children got to hear the stories of those who, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And if our children begin to understand, they stand in a long line of people, you know, back to, you know, Adam and then Abraham and Leah and David and Bathsheba and on the way through the kings and through Mary and through Paul and the early church fathers, the early church, and some of the people we, whose writings we have from the Middle Ages, Julia of uh, Julian of Norwich, we have writings from her in the you know, right. Middle Ages, and some of the Teresa of Avila, and uh, even Martin Luther, and, and some of the people that have been following God closely uh, from 100 years ago, 200, 500, 1,000 years ago. And then you've got these grandparents who are saying, and I'm in that same storyline. Sometimes we think the Bible stories were a different story, but they were not a different story. 
We are in God's story. He is continuing to pour himself into people that he loves. And we are those people. So literally saying we are, the story's continuing through us. It's powerful. Now, how can we teach that? How can they know that? Uh, Almost every story that we teach from scripture, and I'm going to mainly focus focus right now on some of those children or adolescent stories, like in Esther. Um, We think she was a teenager. Um, and when she was preparing to go see the king, you know, she kind of calls this three days of fasting and prayer. Well, I mean, children can enter that and then you can say, what do you think Esther was saying to God in those three days? What do you think God might have been saying to Esther? We don't have those words in scripture, but it is a powerful thing to lean into that and say, well, he was going to tell her that he was going to be with her. And, and, you know, you live into that story. And like in Joseph, I mean, he was thrown in the pit when he was 17. Right. Uh, what was Joseph saying to God? Like, what? What are you doing here? And what was God saying to Joseph? You know, later, much later, 22 years later, we hear from Joseph that he believes that God orchestrated all this for the good of his people, that God was at work even then. So putting that on the end would be helpful. I mean, maybe God could have said to Joseph, I have a plan here. Uh, you know, don't worry, you're not going to die. You're going you're gonna to get out of this. I'm with you. We don't know that God said that, but we hope so. Right. Uh, and even uh, the little boy who shared his lunch, you know, with Jesus and Jesus fed the 5,000. You kind of imagine what the little boy, maybe what was he thinking before he shared his lunch? What might God have been saying to him? Um, what was he saying to God? What was God saying to him? And it's very easy to transition to what is God saying to you today? Right. And you know, children will just flat out tell you. And it's good. I mean, we need to, we need to help them see that God is at work today as he was then. And then I think even to bring it more closely to children, when you tell the Joseph story, uh, what was Joseph afraid of while he was in the pit? If I had been Joseph, what would I have feared? What do I fear now? I mean, to connect those stories, God's present with Joseph. What do you fear now? What do I fear now? And to say, God is also present in your pit. I mean, this works at four and at eight and at 12 and at 16. And, and by the way, 36 and 64 and all that. <laughs> yeah. What, why might Jacob have loved Rachel more than Leah? How did Leah feel? Where did Leah eventually begin to place her trust? We know that with the later boys that were born to her, the name for her boys early on was, the names meant things like, now maybe Jacob will love me. That's what the yeah. name meant. And then later, uh, it's to the glory of God. She names her boys different names later. How am I like Leah? Have I ever felt less love? Why is it so hard to believe that God's love is enough? We've not done a good job in our telling of the stories in a way that help children enter the stories. They can quote scripture and they can tell you who Jacob was and who Leah was, but they have not entered the story to a place to ask that question. Why is it so hard to believe that God's love is enough? Why did Rahab believe what she heard about Yahweh and act on her belief by hiding the spies? Well, I mean, we never, I never heard anybody say, how come all those other people in Jericho didn't join <laughs> Rahab? I mean, 
Why did she believe? She said, we are all afraid. We have heard the stories of your God. Well, they had all heard the stories. Right. Why did Rahab believe? If I consider myself in her place, what would have been my thoughts, my fears, my hopes? She put her life and the life of her family on the line for that belief. It's hard to put ourselves there, but we may in our lifetime face a moment like this. And then my favorite, consider John Mark when he found that Paul didn't want to travel with him. What if I had been John Mark? What would I have felt? When I have failed, who's been my Barnabas? Who has believed in me? Yeah. And when we tell the stories in this way, Barnabas is real. John Mark lived. He felt rejected. There's no way that he couldn't have felt rejected. He Mm -hmm. did. But we've all felt rejected. Ways of asking questions help connect that 2,000-year gap uh, from the New Testament stories and three and 4,000 from the Old Testament to now that God, who was at work then, is at work now. The story continues. And that's what we want them to live into and see. So I hope that makes that real. Well, it does. And, and that's, a, that's a good point, because if we just give them information, and like you said, they'll, they'll know about all the characters, they'll be able to quote the scripture, but they won't know how to actually apply it to their lives and get the actual, you know, benefit of the, the Bible story, you know, because God does want us to do something with that. He just, he doesn't want us to just know the names of all these people, but it, like you said, it's for a reason. And like, when they know that it can, it can make a huge difference, huge difference. So, um, well, thank you for, uh, coming on the show today and, uh, spending some time with us about this. And, uh, if, if you're interested in learning more about this, you can, uh, pick up her book, uh, forming resilient children, the role of spiritual formation for healthy uh, development. Thank you for listening to Kingdom Builders and have a great week.